0: you.
1: I'm Dana Stevens, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Dungeons, Dragons and Depressed College Professors edition. It's Wednesday, April 5th, 2023. And on today's show, we are discussing Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves, the new big screen adaptation of the long popular fantasy role playing game. This is directed by Jonathan Goldstein and John Francis Daly, the creative team who brought us the excellent romantic comedy Game Night a few years ago, which we discussed on this show. We will talk about what they did with uh, tabletop wizard role play on the big screen. Secondly, in the new AMC series Lucky Hank, Bob Odenkirk, beloved to all as the con man lawyer Saul Goodman from the show's Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, is back in a very different guise as college professor Hank Devereaux, a washed-up novelist, an uninspired creative writing teacher, a man at various crossroads in his life. Lucky Hank co-stars Mireille Enos from The Killing from a few years ago, another show we've discussed uh, here on the podcast. We will talk about Lucky Hank. And finally, Maggie Smith is that rarest of things, a poet, a good poet, who is also a viral Internet presence. Her poem Good Bones became a social media sensation in 2016. Since then, she's become a popular online dispenser of what some might call inspiration, others might call hokum. She's also written a new book called You Could Make This Place Beautiful. We'll talk to Dan Coice who profiled her back in 2020 for Slate. Joining me today is Slate Culture writer Nadira Goff. Hi, Nadira. Hi. Nice to have you back again. Thanks for having me. Yeah, April is this very in and out month for all of us. Like, I'm going to be out for for a week next time, but that's kind of great because we've gotten to do things like have Nadira back in the studio, not behind the glass as she used to be as our production assistant, and also have co-hosts like Isaac Butler. Hey, hey
2: Isaac. So nice to be here,
1: Isaac. The first thing I need to do is identify you as the winner of the National Book Critics Circle Prize for nonfiction Thank for twenty twenty three for Thank your book, you. The Method. Give me the subtitle of your book:
2: How the twentieth century learned to act.
1: How the twentieth century learned to act. One of my favorite books from last year. I was so so excited for you when that Thank happened. You. So congrats. You know
2: we're book twins, Dana and I. So I just uh, I'm, it means a lot to me.
1: Yeah. To, no. To I well. can your, my, your yes. book success is my book success. I agree. I agree. I'm, I'm slaloming in your wake.
2: <laughs> yeah. No. It was it was really awesome. I really didn't think i was gonna win uh, i literally screamed what when they announced my name in the in the and i was holding hands to my dad uh, uh oh. you know because he was he was trying to keep me calm but i will say that as great an honor as that is it pales in comparison to my s-fop status here <laughs> on the slate culture gab fest
1: i feel like one more thing to note a meta note before we start is that we're all in the same room yes which i don't think has happened with me and two other Gabfest fest hosts since before the pandemic started. Yeah. I mean, well before, because, you know, Steve and Julie and I for a long time lived in different places. So mm. this is this is an incredible moment. Like we we don't even need the Internet to talk to each other. It's right incredible. Now. It's, it's so incredible. exciting. All right. To quote Mr. Metcalf, shall we make a show? Let's, Let's do, do it. it. All right. Well, the new film Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves is not the first big screen adaptation of the long popular role playing game. There was a much more somber D&D movie just called Dungeons & Dragons released back in 2000. But this new version, which is directed by Jonathan Goldstein and John Francis Daly takes a different and more playful approach to the material. Chris Pine, Michelle Rodriguez, Hugh Grant, Roger Jean-Page, and others play a motley crew of thieves, warriors, wizards, druids, and other vagabonds in the quasi-medieval universe of the Dungeons & Dragons game. They're seeking treasure, magical amulets, justice, and love. I am very eager to talk with both of you about this, not least because you are both, unlike me, players of D&D, and I'm very curious about how you think this functions as an adaptation or not of the game. But first, let's listen to a clip. In this clip, you'll hear the voices of Chris Pine and Justice Smith, who plays the not-very-competent sorcerer, Simon, and an unidentified actor who plays a reanimated corpse. The concept of this scene that you're going to hear a clip from is that one of the magical devices that this crew has is... a amulet? I can't remember. What is a spell? I, I can explain
2: here. It's an, <laughs> it's an amulet that al- that has a speak to the dead spell, which is a spell that allows you to ask uh, a dead person five, five questions. questions after which they return to being dead. Perlomon tergatis.
3: Here we go. Were you killed in the battle of the Everhorse? Yes. Great. I mean, uh, not for you. Sorry for your loss
0: Four more questions,
3: right? Yes No, no, no That that wasn't for you Did that count as a question? Yes Damn it Only answer when I talk to you Okay? Yes Why did you say okay at the end of that? I didn't Fantastic Where's the shovel?
1: I mean, even just on audio, that works so well. I think, and Isaac, you were saying before we taped, you agree with me. I think that might be the funniest scene in the movie. And for me, that's some stiff competition because I don't know about you guys. I'm the movie critic. I'm going to talk first because Steve always asks me first on movies. (laughs) I love Dungeons & Dragons. And I went to it in such a mood of just... Why? I'm not a game person. I'm not a gaming person. I've never played this game. Game adaptations are cynical. And I should never go into a movie, any movie, thinking that, but especially a movie based on a game, because I remember stomping into the Lego movie in exactly the same mood and then being absolutely delighted and it was on my 10 best list for that year. So I wouldn't say that this succeeds quite as well as the Lego movie, but... I was actually amazed how much fun I had watching Dungeons & Dragons, and we can get into all the reasons why, but I think for me one of the main things is that it does not assume any knowledge of the game. And that it is not a meta story about gameplay, which I just assumed that at least there would be a frame story where, you know, some nerds in a basement were playing D&D and then we would switch back and forth between the universes. Not least because there was a promotional trailer, a really charming one, in which the geeks, all three of the geeks from Freaks and Geeks, one of whom is John Francis Daly, who co-directed and co-wrote the movie... Uh, play older versions of themselves playing D&D. It's super charming. You can find it online, and they're all saying, like, how long have we been playing D&D? Why why do we have beards now? We're grown up.
3: (laughs) We should probably wrap it up. It's getting late. We've been playing for 23 years. Man, time really flies when you're playing (laughs) D&D.
1: And I thought that either those guys or some other dudes and girls would be playing the game in the movie. But that is not the case. It is a complete in-universe experience where we are among the elves and the dwarves and the druids and whatnot. Um, You guys can take it from there and talk about how it works as a game adaptation. But I just want to say that I did not expect to be living, laughing and loving the D&D movie.
2: That's a good point, Dana. I think that there is the exact same amount of wink in the film that there is in a good D&D session. You know, Dungeons & Dragons It has become a kind of cooperative storytelling endeavor. That's what its rules are about, is that we all sit around a table and we make up this story together. It started much more as like a tactical combat, almost board game. And the storytelling stuff was totally secondary. And that those have sort of gradually flipped. And so I think at its best, it really does have that feeling. Like the story is totally digressive. The characters get distracted by random bullshit. Um, they screw up all the time. And the closest it comes to a meta commentary on gameplay is actually Chris Pine's character has a speech about failure and how failure is the essence of what they do and it actually is true that in role-playing games failure is what makes the story interesting not success it's that you have a plan to do something and then the plan falls apart and then everyone including the dungeon master who is running the game has to scramble to come up with what the story is going to be because you all fucked up right that's actually what makes Dungeons and Dragons fun it is not I leapt off a cliff with my sword and I stabbed the dragon through the eye and he died and then his belly split open and there was a magic (laughs) ring in it and it, it made me able to fly or whatever uh i will say that if you do know dungeons and dragons there's a lot of fan service in there which they've done a good job of hiding but there was a row in front of me at the alamo draft house that were all in medieval costume and they were going (laughs) effing nuts during the whole movie they're like the harpers they talked about the harpers or you know whatever displacer beasts or you know whatever it was
0: Nadira, what about you? What, first, I want to know a little of your background with D&D. Have you played it a lot? No, I'm very, very new to D&D. I've only been playing for, I would say, maybe like two or three months. And who are the other people in your game? <laughs> they are other slate people. <laughs> do you do it in person or online? Well, we did do it in person, but then as life happens, some of us have moved away. And so now we're transitioning into a sort of online version of D&D. But I say all this to say, yes, I'm a theater kid. Yes, I am new to D&D. And this movie, I completely agree with Isaac is so fun and has just enough of hinting at what the game is actually about. Never in my life have I wanted to actually jump into a gelatinous cube so much, but this movie made jumping into a gelatinous cube seem so fun. And (laughs) I really, really enjoyed it. I think that to just sort of echo what Isaac was saying, there's a, a line in the movie where Chris Pine's character is introducing himself to this new character that they're trying to, you know, get, join the crew. And, she's going through everyone else's role and she's like, you know, well, if you do this and you do this and you do that, then what do you do, Chris Pine? And he's like, well, I make plans. And she's like, okay, well, the plan is already made, you know? What, what beyond that? And he's like, well, when when something goes wrong, then I make a new plan. And she's like, so you make plans that fail? Which is like, yes, yes, D&D is about making plans that, <laughs> that fail. And I think that that, is something that was so well done in this movie. It again like Isaac was saying is it's all about failure, it's all about trying again. And every time they got knocked down whether it was for fun silly reasons or actually really good, you know, heartbeats of the movie, it just felt Right, you know, I didn't want to see a movie where it was like, okay, we're just going through the motions, we're going th- right. through this quest, and we've got this, we've got that, we've got that. And now we're gonna face the big bad. You know, I wanted to see a movie where it's like we got knocked down, we tumbled, we got back up, we got knocked down again, we entered, you know, the underdark or whatever, and and now we're <laughs> now we're here.
2: I, I have a feeling I actually had the most negative opinion. I liked the film, I just didn't think it was that great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll, I'll admit, mm-hmm. uh, in this room, and part of me wonders if like we're so used to the like personality-less glop that Disney has been squeezing out of the MCU tube Mm -hmm. that, like, here comes one that has, like, some charm and personality and we're just, like, so excited by it. You know, um... It, to me it was like it was fun if it was on TV I would watch it I would watch it on a plane or whatever but to me it's like the, the height of this is like The Princess Bride or Pirates of the Caribbean or whatever and it's not like quite there it's it's like a good solid fun time at the movie theater I mean
1: I enjoyed this more than any of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies oh, but really? not as much as The Princess Bride although mm-hmm. I did think of The Princess Bride as a reference while it's watching yeah. it yeah. including in that riddle in the graveyard that's yeah. very Princess Bride yes. humor right yeah. the writing of the, that scene yes. and the idea that you get five questions and you keep accidentally <laughs> really? asking questions and messing up up and they find so many variations. Right. They probably talk to 10 different corpses yeah. in that yeah. scene and every time there's a different gag they find. Now
2: let's be honest, the amulet would have run out of charges and they would have <laughs> needed to have waited to the next day. It's and true. then the next day after it would long have reset the charges <laughs> after a long rest. Um another another great Dungeons and Dragons joke is that they're always explaining their traumatic backstory. Every character has this like incredibly complicated traumatic <laughs> backstory because a lot of the character creation in that game the character creation in that game if you do it right takes forever, because you're just like, oh, then he was kidnapped by dwarves, and then this thing happened, and then this, and then he heard a voice, and he became a bard, or, you know, whatever it is. And I just loved that, like, that's played as a running joke, that the characters always... Because whenever you meet a new character, though, it's like, oh, well, let me tell you. It was a curious day when I became a paladin because of X, Y, and Z.
1: But see, you know what's great is that I think that works whether or not you know totally. D&D, right. because, of course, adventure movies and blockbusters are also based on traumatic backstories yes. and flashbacks and so forth, and so there's some great jokes about that. I mean... I'm going to stand up for this movie for the exact reason you just stated, Isaac. Like, I just feel like movies are at such a dire moment, particularly these kind of blockbusters. Just recently, there was a a tweet from a fellow film critic of mine, Matt Singer, that went semi-viral, complaining that there's no more movies his kids can watch, right? right? Mm. Like, they're too young for, you know, big violent superhero spectacles and don't really like them. And there isn't sort of like a... I mean, I know this is a conflicted figure now to talk about, but like a Harry Potter-type universe, yeah, like a wizarding right. world for kids that's kind of new and exciting, right? And that was what this felt like. I really wish that I had, you know, like Julia's twins, like 10-year-old <laughs> kids to take to this movie. you yes, know, because I would It's, it's, it's great for that age. It's, I mean, I would agree, maybe a little long, a little overstuffed, but not squeezed from a tube. And that's so important for, like, the ecology of cinema right now. That uh, you know just, what that else made is important for the ecology itself.
0: of cinema? Chris Pine. <laughs> Well, I was saving him for
1: last because he's dessert, but okay. Oh, my
0: God. Ladies, ladies.
1: I mean, listeners to this show already know, like, I wrote a probably 2,500-word assessment raving about my love of Chris Pine last year. And this is the perfect kind of role for him. Totally. It's a lot like Captain Kirk in the Star Trek movies, which is the first role a lot of people saw him in that Star Trek reboot. And this is a very Kirkian character, right? Somebody who has leadership qualities but is also sort of impulsive and messy. Just a uh, charisma
0: bomb. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, And the character knows that about himself and is kind of operating from that place. As you were saying, Nadir, his only plan is that he's good at flying by the seat of his pants, right? <laughs> he doesn't really have a skill that he brings besides his kind of bravado, and uh, and Pine is so funny and so keen in that part, and just enjoys his his time in this universe so much. He never sort of seems like he's phoning it in. Hugh Grant as the villain, I mean, I, it's up there with the Paddington Two villain that he played. I think I, like every single line reading of Hugh Grant was just like a, a delicious French pastry.
2: Slate alum Karen Hahn, I think tweeted out that Dungeons and Dragons is is Paddington Two that it like follows is that Paddington Two.
0: Uh, right, right.
2: Because Paddington 2 uh, uh, is, of course, the greatest film since Citizen Kane. Um, but, but, you know, the other thing is that, so one of the things that they do really well that I think the MCU does extremely poorly is how they deal with lore. Because there is an incredible amount of lore about the land in which this takes place. Dungeons and Dragons is a rule set that takes place in a bunch of different worlds. One of which, which this takes place in is the Forgotten Realms and specifically the city of Neverwinter. And they have all this stuff at their disposal. Decades of things that authors have written about in novels or modules or, you know, um, pre-scripted adventures for the game. And instead of getting bogged down in it, they just wear it really lightly, right? Like, if you know what the Harpers are, it's great that Chris Pine's character is a Harper, but, like, they are smart enough to just be like, yeah, yeah all you have to know is the Harpers are a secret society dedicated to good. That's fine. Okay, moving on. And that actually was the thing that I found maybe most impressive, because it's so easy to get bogged down in that shit.
1: Yeah, the fa- as you said before, the fan service is really well hidden, because I was looking for it. Okay, when is there going to be some moment of kind of unpacking lore that I don't understand, you know, and yeah. I was all ready to take notes on that and ask questions about it. And instead, it was really incorporated into the universe so that you at moments saw like, oh, this must be something from the game in that it involves, you know, a a, a challenge being not met or, you know, sort of different ways of problem solving. But you never sensed the role of the 20-sided dice right. or, or whatever it is. In fact, the one moment in the movie where I thought that was going to happen turned out to be a kind of taking the piss moment, which is when Roger Jean Page's character uh, explains this incredibly arcane um, system of rules for getting a cross this bridge over a moat of lava and then (laughs) (laughs) they just blow up the bridge but his explanation is so perfect oh and since we're shouting out performances I never really got the Roger Jean page fever I'm not super crazy about um Bridgerton, Bridgerton—the mm-hmm. show that he became this romantic hero for—didn't really follow that show, and I just sort of thought, like, yeah, he's this good-looking British guy. What's the big deal? Oh my god! But him playing the Paladin character, who is this incredibly self-righteous
0: goody-two-shoes, is who, just marvelous. Who doesn't marvelous. understand idioms? <laughs> yes, right. Like <laughs> yeah. that's his
2: whole thing. He's—he doesn't. I mean, that's a perfect textbook Paladin character.
0: And I think speaking of lore, the way that they sort of bring him in and deal with his character and all of that background is very easy, very quick, and you're just like, all right, sure. Yeah, <laughs> now yeah. let's
1: get to the fun stuff now let's get to the fun stuff yeah, exactly. yeah No, I, I found I couldn't wait he's not in it a lot but I couldn't wait for his return and at the end of this movie in spite of the fact I think it's maybe 15 minutes too long I would not have wanted to lose that 15 minutes of character development because right. there's yeah. lots of great downtime in relationships among the characters it could have maybe lost some of the action scenes but I for one would watch Dungeons and Dragons too.
2: well here's my question though before we wrap Dana would you play Dungeons and Dragons.
1: Well, I'm on record on Slate as not being a game person at all. I would play it with some very, very patient and loving friends who understand that I truly cannot keep game rules in my head for long enough for the full gameplay. So when I sit down and say, yeah, let's do a round of poker, it ends up being, let's explain all the rules of poker to Dana again
0: throughout the game periodically. So I think what let's we've just discovered
2: it. is that Cameron, Nadira, Dana and I need to get together
0: and play we Dungeons really and Dragons. We really do. <laughs> Alright. You just need a good DM to basically do math for you. Because when it comes to Dungeons and Dragons, I'm like, what dice and how many and what hit point? Yeah, no. As soon as someone else rules do the math, math and points, yeah, I and need you a tutor know what? by my it's side. know It's actually not even your job to handle that. So that's fine. You're just there for the story and the fun. I
1: mean, all I like to do as by way of playing as a child was pretending. So to the extent that it involves pretending, it. I'm into it. Oh
2: my god, I'm so into it. I'm sending an iCal invite at the End of this session.
1: (laughs) All right. It's Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves. It's in theaters now. We all, to some degree, liked it. I would say that I loved it. Nadira loved it. And Isaac
2: is a strong like. I'm going to give it a strong like. I'm going to give it a a B. (laughs)
1: All right. Well, so go to the theater, see what grade you would give it, and uh, write to us at culturefest at slate.com. All right. Moving on. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day.
4: All right,
1: now is the moment in our podcast where we discuss business. We have but one item today, and that's to tell you about our Slate Plus segment, which I think is going to be really fun, especially with Isaac Butler, theater nerd in the house. We're going to talk about Phantom of the Opera, the very, very long-running Andrew Lloyd Webber musical that's about to leave Broadway after more than three decades of performances. It's leaving in mid-April. Isaac has a lot of thoughts about Phantom's legacy in the history of Broadway. He's going to talk about the specific era that's now coming to a close, and we'll discuss the end of Phantom of the Opera. If you're a Slate Plus member, you can stay tuned for that segment at the end of the show. And if you are not a Slate Plus member, you can always sign up at slate.com cultureplus When you're a member, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus content like the segment I just described. And of course, you get unlimited access to all the writing on Slate. You'll never hit a paywall when you're a Slate Plus member, and you'll also be supporting us and the work of our colleagues. These memberships are really important for Slate, so please sign up today at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Once again, that URL is Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Okay, back to our show. Professor Hank Devereaux, the character Bob Odenkirk plays in the new AMC series, Lucky Hank is a one-time novelist. His only book was written, I believe, 15 years or so before the show begins. He's also a creative writing teacher in a small college town in Pennsylvania that he himself, as we're about to hear in a clip, derides as a temple of mediocrity. As the show begins, Hank is on the verge of multiple crises in his professional and personal lives. He is the chair of the English department, a position he never seemed to want and may be in danger of losing at any moment. His wife, Lily, played by Mireya Inos, is a high school teacher and she's about to be offered a prestigious teaching job in New York and they'll have to make a decision about whether to move. The father who abandoned him in his childhood is returning back to his life, to his chagrin, and his grown daughter is also coming to him with problems that he has no idea how to address. The clip we're about to hear comes from the first episode. In it, you will hear Bob Odenkirk as Hank blowing up at a creative writing student whose work is frustrating him in class.
3: It's a tricky thing comparing yourself to Chaucer. Yeah, but we don't know that I'm not the next Chaucer. We do know. All due respect, you would not know. All due respect, a cat would know. Your only novel isn't even available at your own campus bookstore. You? You're here! You're here! The main piece of evidence is that you are here! The fact that you're here means you didn't try very hard in high school or, for whatever reason, you show very little promise. Did that sound harsh? I'll tell you what, I'll smile through the rest of this. You are here. And even if your presence at this middling college in this sad forgotten town was some bizarre anomaly and you do have the promise of genius, which I'll bet a kidney that you don't, it will never surface. I am not a good enough writer or writing teacher to bring it out of you. And how do I know that? How? Because I too am here. At Railton College, Mediocrity's capital.
1: All right, Nadira, I will start with you. You and Isaac were both giggling mutedly during that clip. Mm -hmm. I want to know, what did Lucky Hank do for you? And and what were the expectations you brought to it? Were they fulfilled?
0: I overall really liked the show. I don't think it's perfect. I have some critiques, but something that I really enjoy about it as a creative writing major who went to a liberal arts college in Pennsylvania. um, Shout out to Tom McAllister. Shout out to Tom McAllister. Shout out to Temple University. Um, Yeah, as all of those things, I've been in plenty of these situations, of these fiction writing creative workshops. And while I concede that Tom McAllister runs a very, very good one, not all professors do. (laughs) And not all students are equal. And I think the way that the show depicts these caricatures of not only the faculty and their obsession with, like, antiquated frickin', you know, poetry and English language that is so far removed from what anyone is concerned about today— But also the sort of caricatures that they portray of the students is so apt. I was cringing and laughing during that initial scene at that creative writing, you know, fiction writing workshop so hard because I have I've sat in classrooms with people like fucking Bartow (laughs) who ask for your opinion. The next Chaucer, you mean? Yeah, the next Chaucer who ask for your opinion and then just negate any helpful criticisms that you then offer. And you knew you weren't going to offer them in the first place, but they just, like, drag it out of you. And there's also always the student who just praises everyone. (laughs) You know, the one student in this show who's like, you're on my short list for, like, the Booker Prize or whatever. I mean, I'm just going to say it again. I I loved it, and you made my short list for the Pulitzer. You
3: don't get to make a short list for someone else's award. Yeah, look, okay. It's
0: very familiar in a way that I think um, is... Sad, but also comforting and very hilarious. And I think that those sort of played up caricatures are something that Lucky Hank gets very, very correct. I do think that the show overall can be a little bit too on the nose. Like I could do without some of the more morose voiceover. I don't necessarily know that it adds much for me that isn't actually already existing in the show, in the conversations that are being had.
3: I think we've become a bit obsessed with happiness. It's a little much. What happened to just getting through the day?
0: But yeah, I think that there's definitely some good bones, as they say, not to to quote the rest of the show.
1: Isaac, what about you? I think you were chuckling harder than Nadira during the clip. Does um, that mean you like the show more?
2: I, I have complicated feelings about it. Much like I feel the ten, the the desire to overrate Dungeons & Dragons because it doesn't feel squeezed from a tube. Uh, when I watched the first episode of Lucky Hank, I was like, okay, this isn't that great, but it is also a show about normal middle-class adults with normal problems where no one's a billionaire and no one's a drug dealer and no one there's no murder powers. mystery. No one has superpowers. And it was Just so welcome to watch a 45 minute long show that was just about adults with adult problems that I I just felt a great sense of relief. I also think it's proof that Bob Odenkirk is a fantastic actor and has really become one over the course of the last 20 years. Murray um, Enos, who is wonderful in The Killing, regardless of whether you like that <laughs> show or not, and was wonderful in a, um, the show Hannah on Amazon, and is uh, she's not quite given enough to do. She's a, a true weirdo as an actor if you let her be one in really interesting ways, and she's actually playing one of the most normal characters on this. Um, There's great performances. It's funny, etc. I will say, having pushed on to a couple more episodes. I like it more and more, actually. I think it gets better and better. I agree that the voiceover is totally unnecessary. It screams of network notes that they're worried that the show (laughs) might be confusing or we might not know what he thinks about this. or You haven't told a joke in a while. Put some voiceover in is sort of how it feels. Um, But especially as the sort of texture of the world gets deeper and deeper, I find myself um, enjoying it more and more. The second episode is about a, campus visit by the author george saunders who's not played by george saunders he's played by an actor but um i was quite moved by the arc of that episode and its ending um It has no relationship to how English departments are actually run. No. uh, Whatsoever. (laughs) Like none of that stuff makes any sense. I am not the kind of person who cares about that, even though I teach at a college. Um, But I imagine many college professors will be annoyed by, you know, that it it makes it seem like you can lay off someone who has tenure, which you can't do. Um, But no, I was I was really eventually quite taken with it.
1: Yeah, well, when you were saying that Morenos doesn't get enough to do, as as the wife, I was going to say, keep watching. Right. Because mm-hmm. as, the, as the season goes on, she gets to do more and more weird stuff and have her own arcs. I mean, everybody gets their own arc in this show, which yeah. is both really wonderfully empathic, but also there's a lot of arcs to keep track of. If I yeah. had to give notes on this show, I would basically say, I don't think we need to have you know, 10 characters whose backstory we know. Um, I don't think that the workplace comedy stuff works particularly well in this. Bob Odenkirk is so good that he carries the entire show. Without him, I don't think it could work, even though lots of other actors are great. Um,
2: I do think the other actors who play the faculty members are really good. Yes. I just think the writing of that stuff is not sharp enough.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Not, it's not about the performances. I think that there are, as I said, a, a little too much story crammed in there, right? Although it is kind of great that when you you meet... The mother of the Bob Odenkirk character, you think she is this particular kind of character. Then there's a big twist for Mm -hmm. her a a few episodes in that's amazing. I like that it has that um, kind of ability to rabbit hole down with different characters. But the workplace stuff in the faculty lounge, it it just felt wrong to me. And not just because it misrepresents the profession in some ways, although I have a couple of notes on comical misrepresentations of the profession, but because it didn't feel like—it felt like the conflicts between them were not— um, specifically written in the way that some of the yeah. interpersonal relationship stuff or it felt like broader sort of campus comedy. Like you've got to have, you know, whatever, the politically incorrect shit-stirring yeah. professor and you've got to have the, the self-regarding narcissistic poet. And many of those performances and individual scenes were well-written, but it felt too much like uh, a, a writer's room coming up with a mix of, of academic types.
2: Yeah. I will also say, I just have to say this, because if the show is a hit, someone is going to write this piece, and I know that, and it's going to be an annoying piece, and so I just have to get this out of the way. In real life, Hank would be someone that all of us despise, right? He has the golden ticket. He has a lifetime tenure track appointment you know at in his hometown which he's never going to leave and he does absolutely no work like if if you if he was in real life my writer group chat would be complaining about mm-hmm. him literally every day anyone who's worked in academia knows a hank and they are the worst scum of the earth but what's great about this show one of its miracles is that it actually makes you kind of care about that guy and care about his struggle and understand the pain that he's in and where it comes from and and hope that he'll get his shit together and maybe become a slightly better more Dedicated uh, person. And I i think that's no small feat because it's a, the, the Hanks of this universe are actually truly despicable.
1: I agree. And in, in the George Saunders episode, in particular, mm-hmm. the second episode you were talking about, it does that via valuing what he doesn't value, yeah. right? Valuing yeah. language and writing and teaching and work and having George Saunders represent that without having him be sort of a goody two-shoes kind of character. The,
2: the moment between George Saunders and who's the, who's the guy who the terrible writer in the creative writing class? Bartow. B- Bartow. Yeah, the, the scene between George Saunders and him where Saunders still gives him generous feedback that will make his writing better even though that guy's never going to be a good writer yes. is like it's such a it actually made me like believe in teaching, teaching again, yeah, in a weird way a i was scene. like i was actually like very moved by that because as much as the show gets like a lot of stuff wrong like all the discussion of actual writing is completely right on like all the references are right on that he has jesus's son on his bedside table which is the book that every creative writing professor reads over and over and over again you know that it's george saunders that's his friend the feedback they give the students all that stuff actually felt really right on target
1: can i say one thing that really didn't just please because do. It's, it's just silly and comical but his father is supposed to be this eminence right his, yeah. his, his he's father, like william sean yeah something. Who, who teaches at columbia yeah. and is this kind of legend and and hank kind of can't fill his footsteps and there's this moment that he's looking at a blurb written by his father on the back of somebody's academic book, right? His father is positively yeah. blurbing this person in the identification. His father's name is, I believe, William Henry Devereaux. Yeah, because he's
2: William Henry Devereaux Jr., Junior. but he refuses, he refuses to refuses yeah. call yeah. be yeah. called Junior. Yeah. But
1: he's glancing at this back of a book, and the printed blurb on the book says... As a credit, William Henry Devereaux, comma, PhD.
4: PhD.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: like, that would look so bogus that your only qualification. I mean, I should go around
0: blurbing every book. I have a PhD too. Uh, yes. I did notice that, which says that you are correct, because I would not usually notice that if it wasn't. So, so,
2: so the weird. two things we've learned from this week's episode is, is Dana is soon going to play Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. And if you need a book blurbed, write to dana.stevens <laughs> at slate.com.
1: Because I got the credentials, baby. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. The show is Lucky Hank. It's on AMC. I've watched almost the entire first season. I think I have an episode and a half to go, and I'm going to go on through and finish it. I think it's, it's definitely worth checking out, if only for the adulting reasons that, that Isaac mentioned. All right, moving on.
4: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Maggie Smith
1: is an Ohio based poet and writer. You may not know her name, but if you've been online a lot in the past few years, and who hasn't, you're likely familiar with her most famous poem, Good Bones.
2: Life is short, though I keep this from my children. Life is short, and I've shortened mine in a thousand delicious ill advised ways. A thousand deliciously ill advised ways I'll keep from my children. The world is at least 50% terrible, and that's a conservative estimate, though I keep this from my children. For every bird, there is a stone thrown at a bird. For every loved child, a child broken, bagged, sunk in a lake. Life is short and the world is at least half terrible. And for every kind stranger, there is one who would break you. Though I keep this from my children. I am trying to sell them the world. Any decent realtor walking you through a real shithole chirps on about good bones. This place could be beautiful, right? You could make this place beautiful.
1: In the summer of 2016, the same week as the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, Florida, this poem happened to be posted. And I think because maybe of the tumultuous nature of the week and of that year on the Internet, this poem went super viral on multiple social media platforms. Its mixture of despair and hope spoke to a lot of people, including many people who were not habitual readers of poetry at all. The success of the poem changed the trajectory of Smith's life as well. She gained a Twitter following for her inspirational tweets, often ending with the words, keep moving. And in her own personal life, she did keep moving. In the wake of the success of Good Bones, she saw her marriage disintegrate, her Twitter following grow. In 2020, she was profiled by Slate's own Dan Coyce when her first book came out. Now she's written another book whose title comes from the poem Good Bones, You Could Make This Place Beautiful. An excerpt from that book, which is largely about the disintegration of her marriage, has just appeared in The Cut online. Here to talk about all this is Dan Coyce, Slate's culture writer and our resident Maggie Smith expert. Hi, Dan. Hey, guys. I guess, Dan, maybe I'll start, even though this is now um, a few years ago that you wrote this profile about Maggie Smith for a different book. I'm, I'm just going to ask, like, why did you want to talk to Maggie Smith? What is it that you think is is worth noting and talking about, about the uh, the longevity of this poem and the phenomenon of its, uh, its viral fame?
5: I was really interested in what happens to uh, an extremely unfamous poet. Like, she was unfamous even for poets. When you have this lightning strike... The kind of lightning strike that usually when it hits people uh, is bad for them. Virality is almost never good for you. Um, But in this case, it's sort of she was able to make a career out of it. But as this essay in the cut also notes and as she talked with me a little bit, you know, when we were uh, when I was reporting the profile. It was also one of the things that revealed the schisms in her marriage and the sort of fallout from that virality and from the new kind of career it gave her um, contributed to the end of that marriage. And the poem itself is about hope in hard times, Um, and that's a very seductive concept, um, given that it seems like we've been living in hard times as long as any of us can remember Uh, And they only seem to be getting harder. And I was interested in talking to her and thinking about what that means and whether that's a kind of false promise that only art delivers, that in real life is not actually useful. And what we need in hard times is, you know, anger as opposed to sort of, you know, breezy, wheezy hope.
1: Yeah, I think that's the question to be asked about the, the virality of that poem, about her online Twitter presence is this inspiration or is it um, hokey self-help? And, you know, to what degree should we be feeling comfort and solace as she offers in her keep moving tweets, as opposed to feeling righteous rage?
0: Yeah, I guess my main question is not necessarily related to how much we should sort of be peddling hope, but like in the in the methods and ways that we actually peddle it. So to me, it's a very, very interesting decision and choice to have a viral poem, to understand that that poem's virality has sort of revealed certain things about your marriage or about your life or about your sense of self, and then to return to a sort of very public platform, to return to tweets, to return to something else that allows the world back in. And I guess... My main question, especially after reading your profile, Dan, is what do you make of Maggie's sort of relationship to virality, to social media, to the public, especially when there are all these other things that I would assume she's weighing in the meantime, like you were saying, you know, what is sort of the value of hope in this scenario or in this way?
5: Right. The essay seems to be um, a different way of thinking about Uh, what that poem did for her life. Right. The virality caused what she has to view as a positive change in her life, yet it also caused, or at least contributed to several years of pain and difficulty, the kind of pain and difficulty that led to this sort of, Her writing these tweets daily as a way to sort of just getting herself to keep going in the, um, to keep moving, as the tweet said, in the face of what seemed like this overwhelming um, angst and trouble in her life. Um, The piece is about a very familiar. Subject, you know, a subject that in fact Slate has written about before. We uh, about these. It, it is part of the genre of essays about um, success in a creative field for a, a woman in a heterosexual relationship, um, creating a kind of resentment uh, in her partner, and that's tied cleverly and I think truthfully in this essay with a bunch of domestic inequities that will be very familiar to not only to people in heterosexual marriages but to people who read about heterosexual marriages a lot she talks a lot about how when she was gone out in the world doing the kinds of readings and literary conferences the well-paying it should be said readings and literary conferences that the poem gave her um, it, it gave her a chance to finally feel on financial uh, level ground with her husband who is an attorney he viewed that as not real work, as just taking away from her real job, which was caring for the children so right. he could do his mm-hmm. real job mm-hmm. and creating a bunch of problems and emotional labor for him.
2: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I had very conflicting feelings about this piece in the cut, in part because it, it, you know, she already wrote about all of this for Modern Love years ago. Right. And it seems like a weird well to keep returning to um and also i thought the modern love piece was much better um uh, just on a craft level because i thought you know the modern love piece that she wrote about the divorce which which you talk about in your profile with her right it has yeah. this really fascinating image of her returning to google maps to sketch out this previous image of her life because the google maps image of her home is back from when she was still married to her husband which i find really fascinating whereas this is like filled with a lot of jargon terms like emotional labor. Like, it's lacking the specificity and literariness of that earlier piece. And I I don't know. I just sort of felt like— And in
5: fact, the one real, like, literary move it makes at the end is essentially a rehash of that modern love move, which is her pulling mm -hmm. up in front of the old Victorian that she used to live in with her husband.
2: Yes, yes, exactly. And it's interesting because, you know, like— The the, poem—the thing that you point out in your profile is the poem goes viral, which leads people to take a meaning away from it that is not actually in the text, right? Mm -hmm. The text is about forcing yourself to find hope. The text is about a desperate search for hope that requires lying, you know what I mean? And then and people took away from that conflicted feeling about hope. Oh, there is hope to be found in dark times. Do you know what I mean? And I I wonder sort of about the transformation of that interesting conflict in that earlier piece into what what feels like more and more increasing certainty. I don't know. Did you see did did any of you see that or am I totally barking up the wrong tree here?
5: Well that also seems like a product of the way your feelings about the this relationship revolve, right? right? If you're in the midst of a divorce, as she was when she wrote that modern love piece, when it's all fresh and especially hard, um, you are going to project, I think, a lot more uncertainty about the situation. Years later, when you're writing about this in the form of memoir about mm-hmm. a settled event that is now that you remember in a certain way th- that kind of certainty is going to come through in the writing not always necessarily to the um to the betterment of the piece
2: right right there's a difference between like finding your own psychological closure and what might make the most literary sense right
0: i have a perhaps silly question and if it is silly you can just tell me to buzz off but i think the The one thing that I found myself wondering after reading the Modern Love piece, after reading this excerpt, after reading Good Bones, all three of which I found to be particularly grim, but maybe that's just me (laughs) and my own sort of sensibilities, is what does Maggie Smith want? Like, you know, what are we—we sit here, we read these things, and sometimes it seems clear, but when I think about it all as a whole and when I think about the trajectory, I'm just not entirely sure. And is— Maybe, yeah, maybe that's the wrong question, right? You mean, out of her career, what is she out win? of anything out of her career out of out this, of our response out of our response, out of you mm. know like like what is sort of the the point
5: that's definitely not a a dumb question in any way. It's one that essentially the profile asks as well mm. um you know the the cut essay is making a certain kind of argument about recognizing your own worth in a relationship and in the world. um, And sometimes that recognition comes to you from an external source. It sort of is making the argument that one thing that virality gave her was a more accurate comprehension of her own uh, professional and artistic worth, uh, which then led to a revelation about the lack of worth that she was being given in this marriage, um, the lack of power and, um, and agency. And, you know, we had a sort of a long argument. Argument is a strong word, but like a debate that day that I profiled her about um, why sadness is so prevalent in her work, why it all does seem a little bit grim sometimes, even if people pull from it, this kind of feeling of being seen that gives you that like zoom of hope. Um, And I asked her basically, why why isn't there more anger? And one thing that I actually find quite salutary about this cut piece is that though it's a little muted and though she's still polite in the way that only a born and bred Midwesterner can be, um, she's very clearly angry. Yeah, mm, and I would agree. And that anger at this ex-husband is the animating force behind this piece. She was very hesitant when I interviewed her to speak too unkindly about the situation in part because she was still like negotiating, I think probably mostly because she was still negotiating the settlement and she just didn't want to fuck that up. But like, she was very angry then, but asked me to basically not put that in. She's very angry now and she's writing out of that anger. And I think that is like a useful and interesting step forward.
1: One point you make in your profile of Maggie Smith, Dan, that that I love and that I think is, is a suitable place to end the conversation is that it's not very often that ambiguity goes viral. <laughs> you know, I mean, that poem is nothing if not ambiguous. As you said, Isaac, it's basically yeah. about about the paradox of parenting and how you sort of have to put on a brave face to keep on going. And uh, and that is a, is something of a strange uh, thing to go sensationally viral. So if there's one inspiration that I take away from this whole story, it's that poetry still matters enough that... Everybody read the same poem in 2016 and is still talking about it. That in itself, I think, is kind of cool. Anyway, Maggie Smith's new book is You Could Make This Place Beautiful. I believe it comes out next week. So um, check that out and come to your own ambiguous conclusions. Dan, thank you so much for coming on to talk about Maggie Smith with us.
5: Thanks, everyone. Congratulations on your award, Isaac. <laughs> thank you, Dan.
1: Well, we have done it. We've careened that moment in our show when we endorse. Uh, Nadira, I'll start with you.
0: Yes. This past weekend, I was hanging out with some friends um, and one of my friends had come all the way from Queens to Brooklyn for anyone who doesn't know quite a long epic journey. And so we wanted to make the trip worth it. So instead of just doing the one thing we she did travel for which is to get donuts because we're both obsessed with donuts. Um we wanted to spend more time together but it was rainy and we weren't sure what to do. We were in Brooklyn Heights and so we just googled and we found that we could just quickly attend the New York uh City Transit Museum. And so we went to the New York City Transit Museum which the entrance to which looks like a, a fake subway entrance and so we walked past it a few times. But when we finally went down into the museum, it's you know $10 entry. It was so fun. There were kids around, you know, in the museum that were going through the old turnstiles and pretending to drive the bus and stuff. But then it also had actual legitimate information about the construction of the subway system and not just like, oh, these are the heroes, but how people of color and immigrants, you know, were forced to do the harder, more dangerous labor and all of this really important, actually good information. And it turned out that we had so much fun there that we stayed there for an hour in a museum that is surprisingly big and underground. Um, And I... Hesitate to sort of recommend something so local, but I think that my overall endorsement is for the sort of weirdo small museums that might be in your city or in your area, the sort of random stuff that you would only go to if you were trying to fill a specific void of time and it was raining outside or you needed to, you know, find something to do. Because we truly had the time of our lives. We great. learned a lot of really great information. I got some merch. It was good. It was a did, great did you time. go
2: to the old subway s- trains that are yes. in the basement? And- oh. look at the old ads.
0: You should see my phone. It is full of not only like goofy photos of us in them, but the photos of the ads and there's a whole room that's about um, sort of international posters about subway etiquette. And so, you know, it's a very, very cool museum. So
2: If you're a Brooklyn parent, that place is a lifesaver. Every Brooklyn parent I know has spent countless afternoons (laughs) there with their stir-crazy kid running them around. It's great.
1: And they uh, they do all kinds of school trips and events, too. In fact, I have one specific event related to that museum that I really wanted to do last week and I couldn't because I had a, a work thing scheduled during it. But every year... On the opening day of Yankee Stadium, mm-hmm. the first ball game, they run the t- Transit Museum runs a 1917 vintage train all the way to Yankee Stadium, and no you can way. get on it for just a regular subway fare. Wow. And I had it in my calendar; I've wanted to do it for years. I had it in my calendar to do this year, and then I had an interview scheduled at exactly that time, so they will have to wait another year. But Man. do it with me some year. Oh, get on I the 1917 definitely... train; it's got all the original. I think they have old ads in it, probably the same <sighs> stuff as at the museum. And uh, you know, you can just pretend it's the olden times. Amazing. Isaac, what about you? What did you experience this week? Uh, all right. Well,
2: I, I, the thing that I experienced, I have two endorsements. One is something I experienced this week and one is something related to this week's show. I always try to do one endorsement that's related to something we talked about. The thing I experienced this week that was an unexpected delight is the film The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, which is the movie where Nicolas Cage plays himself going to, and he's paid to attend a birthday party that is hosted by Pedro Pascal and then the CIA recruits Nicolas Cage to... Uh, spy on Pedro Pascal because he's an international arms dealer Um, I was expecting it to be really dumb and fun and it is dumb and fun but it is also surprisingly weird and almost as weird as Nicolas Cage himself Uh, among other things there's a a CGI smoothed ghost of young Nicolas Cage that Nicolas Cage has arguments with throughout the movie. Um, It's... uh, uh, The great Sharon Horgan is in it as his ex-wife. I I was surprised at how good it was. It was really fun, and so I really recommend uh, uh, renting it. The one... That is based on this week, and I should do this with a caveat to say that I I know the author. She was actually a professor of mine in graduate school. But if you like academic satire, you really owe it to yourself to read the book, Dear Committee Members, by Julie Schumacher. She won the Mark Twain Prize for it. The New Yorker calls it a comic aria of crankiness, disillusionment, and futility. It follows a year in the life of creative writing professor Jason Fitker. Um, but the entire story is told through letters of recommendation that he is writing for various students and colleagues as they negotiate their lives but it has a whole story in it actually quite funny and then eventually quite moving one um, told through these letters it's really clever you'll read it in a sitting or two it's maybe 200 pages long Uh, it's really great someone should adapt it it's a lot of fun so that's the unbearable weight of massive talent and dear committee members
1: Nice. We talked about the Nick Cage Pedro Pascal movie here on the show, and we all really, really liked it too. Um, An unexpected treat, I thought. Yeah. It's got, it talk about its own voice. It's just yeah. completely original. Not everything in it works, but come on, Nick Cage and Pedro Pascal having buddy comedy banter <laughs> moments. What is not to love?
2: And what about you, Dana?
1: Isaac, my endorsement this week does flow out of a segment. I was actually saving this endorsement up until Julia was around because it was in response to something Julia said recently on the show about not being able to get into the short story, that she's just not a short story person and she's always thinking, why isn't this a novel? I mean, I didn't at that moment feel like I could jump to their defense because I'm not a huge reader of short stories either, but I feel like that's that's my shortcoming <laughs> rather than that particular mode of fiction. But as it happens, I just... Read, or rather, listened to as an audiobook, a George Saunders book. Call back to our segment on Lucky Hank uh, about the short story. There's this book that he came out with. I believe it was a couple years ago called "A Swim in the Pond in the yep. Rain." Do either of you know this? I haven't read it, but I know I know of it. So yeah, the concept of it, which had seemed to me a little bit high concept, but is actually very simple, is that it's uh, it's an alternation of George Saunders talking about a series of Russian short stories that he's taught over many years in his in his writing classes by Chekhov, by Tolstoy, by by Turgenev, um, and different actors reading those aloud in the audiobook. So you'll hear George Saunders' voice, you know, giving the intro and sort of talking about the background. And then we'll switch over to a voice of various story readers. And Felicia Rashad is one of them. Uh, I can't remember who else. Rain Wilson reads a story. Various actors come in and read the stories themselves. And then you go back to George Saunders essentially giving a class on the story, I would imagine, with material that he's used for teaching students for years. And it just really it was such a profound experience. First of all because the stories are incredible and most of them I did not know at all. Um and secondly because you really do feel like you're being taught by this wonderful wonderful writing teacher who really gets to the craft of what makes the stories work. He's not a literary critic. He's not approaching them in that way. He's really approaching them as a craftsman and a person who is trying to think about how to use those lessons in his own writing. So it becomes both a kind of writing advice book and a, a way of understanding Russian literature. I didn't love the way every actor read their story, so I. but I loved George Saunders re- talking. So I sometimes switched back and forth. And we just, you know, if you can find all these stories in PDF form, basically right. they're famous old stories in the public domain. So read or listen to the Chekhov, Turgenev, Tolstoy, and Gogol stories in A Swim in the Pond in the Rain, and then listen to the audio of George Saunders explaining those stories to you. It was so—I actually made it last as long as I could because it was such a pleasure Mm -hmm. to listen to this that I would just decide, I'll just do one story in the explanation today, and then I'll wait for the next one, Um, A Swim in the Pond in the Rain. All right. Well, thanks so much to both of you for coming on the show. Nadira, it was a pleasure, as always. Thanks for having me. And Isaac, I hope you will join us again in the very near future. I would love to. You can find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page at Slate.com slash CultureFest. You can also email us at CultureFest at Slate.com. Our intro music is by the great composer Nicholas Brattel. Our production assistant is Jessica Balderrama. Our producer is Cameron Drews. I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you soon.